Welcome to Navara Live. I'm Moya Lady McLean, and this week I'm joined by the wonderful Sean Fay, who has just got off a flight from New York. Hi, Moya. I am jet lagged and ready to go. That's exactly how we want you. Who knows what could be said tonight? Um, and we will be talking about the controversial vote ID laws that are coming into effect in the upcoming local elections. We'll also be discussing the latest regressive law and protest passed by the Tories. Let's go to our first story. Gambling is a huge debate in the UK and it's also a billion dollar industry, turning over £14.1 billion a year, according to statistics produced by the government's Gambling Commission. Now, campaigners have been fighting to see regulations placed on gambling for years. And with the publication of a new government white paper from the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, they might just have gained some ground. According to the BBC, the proposals are, quote, the biggest shakeup of regulation in the sector for nearly 20 years. Now, they include introducing a statutory levy paid by gambling companies to the Gambling Commission in order to fund research, education and the treatment of gambling harms, a stake limit for online slots games between £2 and £15 with lower stakes proposed for 18 to 24-year-olds, rules that compel online gambling companies to do financial welfare checks on customers losing money, starting from monthly losses of £125 and the introduction of a gambling ombudsman. Other signs the tide might be turning on gambling and the Premier League is voluntarily ending front of shirt sponsorship by gambling firms, albeit not until the end of the 2025-2026 football season where we could have a whole new government by then and Arsenal might finally have won the Premier League. On the whole though, gambling regulation campaigners are pretty pleased with the government pledges, although they are critical of the time it has taken to produce them. Talking to Sky News, here's what Matt Zab cousin from Clean Up Gambling had to say. What you've just heard there in the Commons, I'm assuming that you'll welcome this? Yeah, we do welcome it, definitely. I mean, it's been a real fight to get to this point, but I mean, there's some, some good things in there. The statutory levy is going to be uh, really instrumental in bringing about a proper treatment system across the country, um, independent research, that's going to raise about £150 million a year. So obviously that's brilliant. And the commitment to restricting the stakes online on online slots, which is the biggest revenue driver for online gambling, um, that's obviously very, very welcome. And we hope that that, that lands around £5, you know, more towards £5 and £15 post-consultation. Um, the commitment to affordability checks, albeit you know, if what's briefed is correct, £1,000 a day is probably a bit high. So hopefully that gets ironed out in the consultation phase. Um, but this whole process has taken far too long. You know, it's, The call for evidence started in December 2020. So we're now, um, you know, £13 billion has been lost online in that time since, since that call for evidence. And now they're committing to further consultation on certain areas. But it is positive. It's a big step forward. Um, so, you know, I, I, but it, as I say, it's been a real fight to get to this point. And I think there are some emissions in there which are pretty glaring, such as around marketing. Obviously, you had the, the Premier League doing the um, voluntary ban on, the, on the, the front of shirt sponsors. But really, the, they could have gone much further with marketing. Like, you know, I think that, that that's probably the thing that's missing there. And it sounds like in, in that respect, Scott Benton has got his way uh, ahead of the evidence. 
Saab Cousin references Scott Benton there. Quick reminder, that is the disgraced Black Bull South MP who's currently suspended from the Tory party. Now, Benton lost the whip after he was filmed promising to lobby ministers on behalf of the gambling industry in exchange for up to £4,000 a month. Benton also said he could get representatives from a fake investment fund who were, actually, to his discernment, undercover journalists from the Times, early access to the then-unreleased gambling white paper. Would it be realistic to get advanced sight of the white paper, for example, when it's sort of finally decided or anything on those lines? Uh, probably. Um, that would only be a number of days, so... Okay, so that would still be useful for investment. Yeah, for a defence site. Absolutely, I could guarantee you would get that within 48 hours of publication, for example. Before publication? Yeah, I would yeah. make some of that to make sure that happens. Great. He also bragged about being able to circumvent the rules governing gifts and hospitality. MPs have to declare any gifts worth more than £300. But Benton said, quote... Without saying too much, you'd be amazed at the number of times I've been to the races and the ticket comes to £295. Wow, what a coincidence. This week, the Parliamentary Standards Commissioner opened a formal investigation into Benton for a potential breach of the MP's Code of Conduct. Now, he's accused of having damaged the reputation and integrity of the Commons. But Benton's main crime seems to be the way... He was caught discussing the money rather than the fact he would have taken it. There are plenty of MPs who merrily receive money or gifts from the gambling industry or people linked with it. And it is all very much above board, encouraged even. Like Labour politicians, including party leader Keir Starmer. Navarra Media published this piece by Matt Zarb cousin again, in January. Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves, it was reported in Open Democracy, took £20,000 from Neil Golden, former chairman of gambling giant Gamesays. Meanwhile, Shadow Health Secretary Wes Streeting received £5,000 from Red Capital Limited, the company owned by Labour peer John Mendelssohn, chair of William Hill Owners 888 Holdings. But perhaps this should come as no surprise. During his leadership campaign, Starmer received £25,000 from Peter Coates, founder of Bet365, which only surfaced after the election, since Starmer refused to be transparent about the donations he'd received while the campaign was ongoing. Interesting. It's worth noting that Peter Coates has donated hundreds of thousands to the Labour Party since 1997, with a few exceptions, the years that Jeremy Corbyn was leader when Coates stopped his payouts, unhappy with the direction of the party. No worries, though. With Starmer in charge, he is very happy to cough up again. And Starmer has no qualms about taking gambling industry money, despite previously labelling Benton's under-the-table deal-making as part of a, quote, wider Tory sleaze. It's really important that we have rules and regulations and transparency so that Wherever anybody accepts hospitality, we know what's happened. But with Scott Benton, what you've seen is a flagrant disregard of those rules, of those principles. And it's not a one-off. Only a few weeks ago, we saw three other Tory MPs uh, looking after lucrative jobs, thousands of pounds at a time for their apparent advice. And I think all of this shows that the Prime Minister's lost a grip um, and, you know, if ever we needed further evidence, this is it, that Tory sleaze is back. Mr Rules was pretty clear there. What Benton did is beyond the pale. But taking gambling money, industry money, in general is not. After all, it's not as if the gambling industry is donating thousands to the Labour Party with 
any ulterior motive. <gasps> this was something that Sky News anchor Jane Secker pointed out today to Shadow Culture Secretary Lucy Powell. We're talking to two people this, this morning just on this programme on Sky News have told of, of the truly dreadful impact that gambling mm. addiction has had on their mm. lives. And, you know, I think if, if the leader of the Labour Party has taken £25,000 from, from, from one of the leaders of, of one of these gambling companies, well, you know, as you say, yes, it's been absolutely declared. But, you know, people don't donate to political parties unless they think that it's going to have some impact, do they? Well, look, uh, I've met with many of those families myself. I've attended their events. I've uh, I've very gladly supported their campaigns and supported the actions that they've been calling for. I've spoken at a number of those events as well, and I do so uh, I, I do so proudly. Uh, and you're talking about, I think, Bet Three Six Five who actually also, I think, pay the biggest amount of tax in, in, in this country as a private firm. And the owner of that firm is a, is a long-standing and well-known member of, of, of the Labour Party, in fact. Um, I've had no contact with them whatsoever uh, in, in this role uh, directly uh, or, or, or even vaguely as a result of them uh, donating or otherwise to, to anybody else. And uh, but I've had a lot of contact with the families that you describe, and, and, and rightly so. And I think that's why, on a cross-party basis, and very much as a Labour Party basis, we have come to the conclusion uh, in recent years that these laws, this legislation, this regulation, and the regulators that, that govern it have needed uh, strengthening and needed bringing into the digital age, and that we do need things like affordability checks. We do need things uh, more protections for children and young people. We do need things like state limits. We do need a uh, levy. And we do need further consideration of issues like uh, advertising, which I think the government has, ha has, has gone a, a little bit weak on um, in this statement today. So I think judges by our actions and judges by what we stand for, what we're calling for, what we vote for, what we do, uh, and don't judge us by the range of different people uh, for whatever reasons, usually because, um, mostly because they share the values of the Labour Party who, who donate to, to us okay. uh, carrying out our, our, our job and, and helping us to win the next general election. Not exactly a snappy little soundbite to end on, is it? Judges by, not by our actions, but judges blah, 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 blah. Um, but their actions are very much taking money from the gambling industry. Fascinating that Lucy Powell's uh, defence of this is to say, oh, but, you know, Bet365 pays loads of tax. Cool. They're paying loads of tax on profits they've made from exploiting people in one of the most damaging industries that our country has absolutely fascinating. And the idea that lab that somehow because Peter Coates is a Labour donor, that makes him morally good or the business that he's in is morally good. Labour politicians, their idea of what is ethical is absolutely fascinating. Sean, what do you think? Do you think that sh Labour should be taking money from the gambling industry? No, I mean, I don't, obviously. I think I mean, I was on a Hindu like two weeks ago and I was talking to a girl who was on it who is like a jobbing actress and she does a lot of advertising. And I asked her if there are any jobs that she's ever turned down. And she was like, the gambling industry is the main one that she just doesn't feel even comfortable as an actress appearing in a gambling advert. And I feel like, you know, if if, <laughs> if someone who is probably, um, you know, essentially working on quite a freelance precarious way can turn down the gambling industry, then certainly the Labour Party can. Um <clears throat> 
Uh, Matt Zarb Cousins piece for Navarra Media that you quoted there is really good. I'd recommend anyone read it. But I am sort of largely in agreement with him there that uh, not only is is the gambling industry specifically predatory right on the working class, which is why it makes it even more sort of um, beyond the pale and egregious that labor um, is so in bed with that industry. Because, yeah, when you think about it, it is often uh, when you think about betting shops, gambling shops, uh, the communities that they're in, the people that they target. Obviously, addiction can affect people from all walks of life, but certainly the way that the most pernicious aspects of the gambling industry manifest in the UK, they do seem to target working class areas and working class communities. The other thing I think um, <clears throat> is that uh, Labour has a historical kind of, uh, I guess, uh, I don't know, uh, f- guilt I guess I would say in respect of this, because it was Tony Blair's um, government uh, that reformed the gambling uh, regulations in this country in order to open it up. I mean, before that, I think Matt's cousin says it was like mostly the mental image that the public had of gambling was like grannies doing bingo. And in the subsequent years since New Labour and they're relaxing where there is less of a burden on gambling firms to demonstrate a reason for why they are expanding We've seen, you know, the scale of the problem of addiction and lives ruined grow in direct proportion to the profits of the gambling industry. I think that's a really interesting point that you made that also the title of that Marzal Cousin piece for anyone who wants to read it is Gambling Firms Prey on the Working Class. Why is Labour taking their money? Why is it taking so long for gambling to be recognised as an addiction problem on the scale of booze and drugs by the government? Not that's necessarily always a good thing. We've seen what the government do when it comes to tackling addiction with booze and drugs, they penalise more. In this case, it seems like they're taking a more proactive uh, approach. But is it because it's working class people who are primarily seeing their lives ruined by this? I think it's probably the primary reason why it's perhaps until now um, been treated differently is because gambling addiction, for example, is a process addiction, is that um, someone can... Uh, you know, be very much lost to an addiction and destroy a lot of their lives, especially financially. But it sort of can go under the radar. It can be hidden, obviously, from families and communities. But also, um, it doesn't seem to cause as much of the sort of social nuisance aspect as um, alcohol is certainly perceived to. And of course, with drugs, there's the added um, aspect that it um, is criminalized and has always had the stigma of the criminal law attached to it, often to drug addicts detriment, I should say. So I think it's about more about, again, this kind of slightly retrograde view, charming view of gambling as like a sort of fun pastime. You know, it's there in like the novels of Jane Austen. Let's play some whist. And the reality is, is that what um, this industry, this engorged industry has grown into is something that unfortunately, encourages a lot of people to engage in an addiction that is completely destructive. It's a dopamine um, driven process addiction that is as devastating for those addicts as alcoholics and drug addicts um, addictions are devastating for them. But yeah, I think you you quite rightly say I would be cautious about saying that um, we're treating it as seriously as uh, booze and drugs, because I think we don't. I think what we need in in case of all addiction, um, whether it's process addiction like gambling or, or substance abuse, is um, really a true uh, reimagining of our entire approach to a public health 
approach. I mean, if you consider the scaling back of local authority rehabilitation services, outpatient services, it's impossible um, to access, you know, something like a residential rehab for addicts, most addicts now. It's it's really, really tough. And um, and that wasn't always the case. It wasn't the case in the 90s. And there's just been a complete um, lack of investment uh, whenever we talk about, um, obviously there is good regulation in the in, in alcohol advertising now, but when we talk about addiction, we need to be talking about not just prevention, but also treatment as well, because it's, it's a two-pronged thing. Um, and neither one is going to completely um, resolve the problem in isolation. Yeah, I think that's a really salient point. And part of the white paper that was being celebrated by campaigners was the fact that there is going to be this, if it passes, uh, statutory levy on gambling industry companies in order that they will have to pay money towards funding research and treatment of people suffering from gambling addiction. So we'll see if that ever comes to pass. Next story. Members of the Royal College of Nursing were set to walk out over two days at the beginning of May over pay and conditions. But now, last minute legal action by the government has cut their strike in half. The RCN had planned to take industrial action from 8pm on the 30th of April until 8pm on the 2nd of May. But a High Court judge ruled this morning that walkouts planned for the 2nd of May would be unlawful and that the union did not have a mandate beyond the 1st of May, coincidentally, International Workers' Day. Now, this was General Secretary Pat Cullen speaking outside the High Court after the decision. This is the darkest day in this dispute so far. Any government that would drag their nursing staff through the courts, they've won their legal battle today. But what this has led to is they've lost nursing and they've lost the public. They've taken the most trusted profession through the courts by the least trusted people. And what a day for nursing. What a day for patience and what, what, an, what an indictment on this government. What a great occasion for some brand new attack lines. Now, the RCN didn't appear in court to give evidence. Instead, Cullen submitted a witness statement and the union explained in a letter why it wouldn't be attending the proceedings writing this. The RCN has been a staunch critic of the ideologically driven changes introduced by the Trade Union Act 2016. Given the existence of an overwhelming mandate from its members in support of the action, the fact that not a single employer has intimated a challenge to the planned action on 2nd of May 2023 and the steadfast public support for nurses taken action, the RCN does not wish to give credence to what it fervently believes to be an unnecessary and misguided application brought by the Secretary of State and one which is exclusively based upon one of the very many amendments introduced by the Trade Union Act 2016. A reminder passed by Theresa May, the Trade Union Act placed new restrictions on unions, making it much harder to strike. And one of those is that a ballot for strike action automatically expires after six months, meaning a union must re-ballot to keep the industrial action going. In this case, the RCN lost because their last ballot was held on the 2nd of November last year, with the judge ruling that it means it expires on May 1st. In response to the ruling, Health Secretary Steve Barclay had this to say. I firmly support the right to take industrial action within the law, but the government could not stand by and let plainly unlawful strike action go ahead. Both the NHS and the, my team tried to resolve this without resorting to legal action. 
But unfortunately, following a request from NHS employers, we took this step with regret to protect nurses by ensuring they are not asked to take part in an unlawful strike. We welcome the decision of the High Court that the Royal College of Nursing's planned strike for May 2nd is illegal. I want to leave you with this headline from The Telegraph. Incompetent nurses strike cut short by High Court. Royal College of Nursing forced to shorten action after walkout on May 2nd ruled unlawful. I just think it's absolutely hilarious what Steve Barclay said here, where he's saying, you know, we took this action to protect, protect nurses by ensuring they're not asked to take part in an unlawful strike. Well, I think the incompetent ones might be the government because what they have created is a lot of angry nurses. And it's also given Pat Cullen a slogan of her own, that the government prefers dragging its nurses, its most trusted profession in England, she said, through the courts to negotiating. Now, it'll be interesting to see how this unfolds when the RCN reballots. I'm suspecting a large mandate in favour, all of which, which I'm sure we will be covering on this show when it happens. So remember to keep tuning in over the next few months. Shall we go to the next story? The Tories are still doing their best to drag the country further into a waking nightmare. They have now successfully passed another piece of rights-restricting legislation in the form of the Public Order Bill. And if you need a reminder, this is a set of laws intended to mop up all of the nastiest amendments cut from the 2022 Police, Crime, Sentencing and Courts Act. Cracks down on protest and public disruption. As you can imagine, that is a very vague and subjective term with plenty of room for interpretation and mm, mm, abuse of power, just how the current crop of Tories like it. The House of Lords managed to remove some of the most draconian amendments to the bill, including police powers to preemptively restrict protests if they predict, by mystic Meg Powers, that they will become disrupted later down the line. But here is what some of what remains in the final form of the Public Order Bill, which may as well just be called the Anti-Just Stop Oil Bill. Some key points. It creates a new offence of interfering with key national infrastructure like airports or railways, carrying a maximum 12-month jail sentence or an unlimited fine or both. It carries an offence for locking on, which is attaching yourself to buildings or objects, which now comes with a maximum six-month jail sentence, an unlimited fine or both. Police are equipped with new suspicionless stop and search powers and serious disruption prevention orders which restrict being in a certain place for those labelled as likely to cause serious disruption. If that sounds bad to you, you are not alone. Even Tory MPs spoke out against the new powers for police. It's David Davis in the Commons on Monday. I find myself, uh, I'm afraid, in agreement with the opposition spokesman. I also support the uh, the Casey recommendations, based as they were, on a horrifying report uh, about the behaviour of the Met over the years. And, and let's be clear, no government of any persuasion has actually managed to get the Met to behave, and not just the Met, other police forces too, in, in a manner which is acceptable to the public. And bear in mind that there have been governments of both uh, orientations since Stephen Lawrence. Uh, the second point I would make very quickly is that when the Home Secretary in 2010, Theresa May, for those who don't remember, um, uh, limited uh, stop and search, she did not do so out of an excess of liberal sympathy. She did so because at that point in time, stop and search was being used in such a way that it caused serious problems, race relations problems, uh, in several parts of the country. 
now, that stop and search was largely targeted on stopping violence. On, because at that point, and it may well still be true today, but at that point, the perpetrators of knife crime and the victims of knife crime tend, mostly came from minority communities. Uh, and the, that's why the minority communities themselves were, were not happy about the operation of the system, but they understood why it was there. That is a, an order of magnitude different from using suspicionless stop and search for controlling demonstrations. Davis's objections are being backed by a pretty significant ally, the UN. Here is a press release the organisation dropped today. UN Human Rights Chief urges UK to reverse deeply troubling public order bill. Volker Turk, the UN Human Rights Commissioner, does not mince his words. Turk said, This new law imposes serious and undue restrictions on these rights that are neither necessary nor proportionate to achieve a legitimate purpose as defined under international law. This law is wholly unnecessary as UK police already have the powers to act against violent and disruptive demonstration. It's especially worrying that the law expands the powers of the police to stop and search individuals, including without suspicion, defines some of the new criminal offences in a vague and overly broad manner, and imposes unnecessary and disproportionate criminal sanctions on people organising or taking part in peaceful protests. Now, Turk saved particular attention for serious disruption prevention orders, adding... The grave risk here is that these orders preemptively limit someone's future legitimate exercise of their rights. I'm also concerned that the law appears to target in particular peaceful actions used by those protesting about human rights and environmental issues. As the world faces the triple planetary crisis of climate change, loss of biodiversity and pollution, governments should be protecting and facilitating peaceful protests on such existential topics not hindering and blocking them. Now, he finished that by asking the UK government to, quote, reverse the legislation as soon as feasible. Given that Home Secretary, Suella Braveman, was on Nick Ferrari's LBC show on Wednesday slamming environmental protesters as eco-zealots and championing the public order bill, that seems unlikely. Now, here is what she said. What is your instruction to police officers if they see the highways being blocked in this fashion? I think it all depends on individual circumstances. Um, and the issue with these militant protesters is one that I, I know many of your listeners and indeed myself are incredibly frustrated. Uh, these you know, eco-zealots are, are selfish, they are disruptive, they're causing misery to many people who can't get to work, who can't get to hospital, who can't get to school. If they're causing uh, a, a level of disruption which is serious, which meets the criminal threshold, then the police must definitely intervene and arrest. We have seen, incidentally, over but recent years, thousands of, uh, uh, approximately thousand, uh, thousand arrests being made, hundreds of convictions. In fact, last week, we saw, or very recently, uh, one such arrest leading to uh, a custodial sentence for one of the protesters who was hanging from the gantries on in, indeed, the Indeed, but if, if, I, take, if I take you to the streets of London, I think the new tactics is that I and my colleagues, were I to join this group, we're going to walk at a snail's pace. Should we be rested for that? I think uh, uh, these are decisions for the operationally independent police. Well, and is there a law that provides the for their arrest, Home Secretary? Is there a law well, that if it constitutes... Yeah, if, 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 if it constitutes an obstruction of the highway, that will be the uh, offence 
with which those people will be charged. But there is, as I say, uh, a threshold that needs to be met. Uh, this is why we're passing uh, the public order bill, soon to be an act. We want to improve and increase the police powers available so that they can take more swift action. That's why, uh, incidentally, uh, we, we, we tried to uh, amend the level of serious disruption recently that was blocked by Labour. Uh, they preferred to side with the militant protesters. Uh, so it's going to take us a bit of time before we can increase and enhance police powers in taking action against the very scenario that you, which you're, to which you're referring, Nick. Now, even without the public order bill, environmental protesters are still being hit with the full whack of the law at the moment. In October last year, two Just Stop Oil protesters shut down the Dartford Crossing. It was out of operation for just under 48 hours. And last week, they were sentenced to more than two and a half years in prison. Now, 34-year-old Marcus Decker received two years and seven months in prison, while 40-year-old Morgan Trowland was given three years. The judge in their case said they had to be, quote, punished for causing chaos and in order to deter copycats. It's worth mentioning that the pair have been held on remand, meaning they've been in jail awaiting trial since October 2022, which adds about six extra months onto their sentences respectively. Sean, why are the government increasingly using climate protesters as their justification for this sort of rights-robbing legislation? It might be that the climate movement is one of the biggest threats to state power because it is a sort of broad based movement that includes people across generations, of course, but especially young people, but across like lines of class, ethnicity, race. And it's only going to continue growing um, because the climate crisis is go- is growing. And I think younger generations and, uh, and, you know, right down Gen Z, even younger, are going to increasingly become angry with governments and, and I don't know, the older world's failings in respect of the climate crisis. So I think if you enter the mindset for a minute, which I don't really care to, but of the of the Tories and of Suella Braverman, I think what here is is this idea is is a is an attempt to dissuade people to make it really punitive from joining these movements to make it um, something that isn't easy to do that people have to think twice about that how you have to have that extra layer of heroism in order to be a climate activist engaged in civil disobedience i think that's a large part of it and of course that's in the interests of the tories and their donors many of whom are sort of deeply uh, enwrapped with the fossil fuel industry shall we move on to our next story next week There are local elections for over 8,000 seats across England. It's the first time voters will go to the polls following the Tories churning through three different prime ministers and crashing the economy. And it's also the first time that voters will need to take photo ID to their polling station, raising concerns that the government is trying to influence the outcome by disenfranchising certain groups of voters. These are the kinds of photo ID that will be accepted at polling stations next week. Passport. Driver's license, blue badge, older person's bus pass, disabled person's bus pass, Oyster 60 plus card, freedom pass, biometric immigration document, Ministry of Defence form 90, national identity card issued by an EEA state. But many people in England don't have any of these documents full stop. Instead, they had the option of applying for a voter registration certificate. In Parliament, Labour MP Nick Smith said the Electoral Commission told him that between 250 and 350,000 people should, 
should have applied for the document by the deadline earlier this week. But in fact, only 85,000 applications were made. So we know that a lot of people are about to be disenfranchised, but it's now merged that we may never know the true number of people who will be prevented from voting. As a safeguard against removing people's right to vote, the supposedly independent Electoral Commission will be reviewing the impact of voter ID on these elections. Now, to do this, they'll be recording some, but only some, of the voters turned away from polling stations. The Guardian reports this. While clerks inside polling stations will take a formal register of those who cannot vote because they lack the correct photo ID, some venues will place other staff outside as so-called greeters who remind people about the need for ID before they go in. These greeters will not take a note of the number of people who leave when told about the requirements the Electoral Commission has confirmed, meaning the total number of potentially disenfranchised voters may never be known. It's worth noting that the Electoral Commission's independence is also being threatened by the very same elections bill that has brought in voter ID. Now, in Parliament, levelling up Minister Rachel McLean was asked an urgent question by Labour MP Clive Betts about measuring the impact of voter ID, but she refused to answer. So, shadow levelling up Minister Alex Norris tried again. Colleagues will be dismayed that fewer than 90,000 of the up to 2 million people without appropriate ID have applied for a voter authority certificate. Uh, voter ID has always been a solution in search of a problem and millions of pounds have been squandered on this process and we now find that hundreds of thousands of people have had their vote taken off them. And the minister talks of ex experts, but all the experts, the Electoral Commission, the Association of Electoral Administrators, the Local Government Association, all begged the government not to introduce it for these May elections because there wasn't time. Ministers didn't listen, and this is the consequence. The sole accountability is theirs. And we wait to see the scale of this travesty, and that's rightly, of course, a role for the independent review. But that review only works if they have the correct data. And again, I raised uh, all questions last month with ministers this point that many returning officers intend to use greeters outside of polling stations to turn those without ID away and that those turned away would not count as denied votes. This is deeply wrong and not acceptable. The minister did not address this point uh, in answer to my honourable friend, so I will press her again. Whose advice is right? Will those people who are turned away by someone outside of a polling station uh, who has asked an individual if they have the ID, will they or will they not count as someone who has been denied a vote? Once again, McLean didn't answer. Instead, she pivoted to this. I do find it very surprising that their party is not committed to protecting the sanctity of the ballot box. The reason we have had to introduce this legislation is because of the absolute fiasco that we have seen taking place and unfolding in Tower Hamlets and in Birmingham over the years. We need to protect the sanctity of the ballot box. That is what we are doing. The answer is pretty embarrassing and shows that McLean is either lying or has completely no idea what she's talking about. To be fair with the Tories, it could be both. That's because fraud cases in Tower Hamlets and Birmingham were about postal votes, which has absolutely nothing to do with voter ID. Now that led the SNP's Peter Wishart to make this damning assessment of McLean's answers. What an absolute utter mess. Yeah, 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 yeah. Barely seen a performance so inept yeah, and yeah. ill-informed in the minister at the dispatch box this morning. They can't even tell us how those that they're disenfranchising will be recorded. Exactly. All I can say, Mr Speaker, is thank goodness that in Scotland we will have nothing to do with this voter suppression mechanism 
for yeah, yeah. elections under our responsibility. But doesn't the example of the Norfolk Tories and that leaflet just actually show us that what they are doing is introducing voter fraud where none existed? So what happened in Norfolk? Oh, just this. This Tory election leaflet was delivered to around 250 homes in Norfolk. And the box in the bottom right, it says, you don't need to take any ID in order to vote. The local Conservatives in Norfolk have now apologised, blaming a, quote, printing error. Local elections, voter ID. We probably won't see the full scale of disenfranchisement because the local elections turnout is always so low. But is this a problem that is going to run on until the general election? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, it's actually just I was just even watching the clips back there. I was just my breath is taken away by the dishonesty and the but also the sort of blatant in plain sight nature of the voter suppression. And I think it's absolutely um, designed to suppress the ability to vote of the very people, right, who are who are less likely to vote for the Tories. You know, younger people, people, for example, with learning disabilities, um, it's tricky for trans people. It's complete uh, intentional vote stealing, um, you know, so, so robbing people's right to vote. And I think it is actually, this is a test run. And uh, whilst we can push all the Insta- Instagram infographics we want, telling people to register to vote, I think it is, you know, going to have quite a serious impact, unfortunately. So why do you think it is so hard to get people to vote? Is it because they're disillusioned and disengaged? Yes, I think so. To be honest, I mean, I, I, I'm happy to say it is that, you know, I really struggle to uh, to get the will to participate in parliamentary politics. You know, I, I live in a safe Labour seat. I would vote to block a Tory, but that's not going to happen with the first past the post two party system. You know, I am completely disillusioned with what is on offer from the Labour Party. And I also know that particularly in a general election context, no other party is really going to have a realistic prospect. And I think when you've had that for years and years and years, and of course, you know, like many people, I got behind the Corbyn project and saw how that turned out. I think what we're going to see in the next general election from the people that will still feel very salty, if you like, about the Corbyn movement, is, yeah, complete disillusionment. Why should I bother? The problem is, is that that unfortunately falls to progressive politics. It falls to us on the left and, you know, people who claim progressive politics, even if they're liberals, because actually I think conservatives always rely on an element of apathy and pessimism. Left-wing politics, unfortunately, has failed to do so far in this country, and and certainly the sort of the Labour right cannot do, is provide people with a sort of, I don't know, a real animus, a real drive to vote for something that that seems hopeful, that seems transformative, that seems like a project, frankly, worth going through all these administrative hoops. So I don't particularly judge anyone that that feels apathetic with regards to participating in democratic politics. I think the old school that I was always told in school, like you've got to vote, people died for your right to vote. You know, I don't think that washes anymore. And that's because of the corruption and perfidious nature of of, of parliamentary and Westminster politics for now a generation. I think that's very insightful. I also want to pick up your comments about 
the voting system because, interestingly, Byline Times had a story today about Keir Starmer doubling down on comments he made, I think in September 2022 initially, where he says that he has no interest in reforming the first-past-the-post system. Uh, and he previously said it wasn't priority. Uh, now, a Starmer's special spokesman has revealed the Labour leader has a, quote, long-standing view against proportional representation. When asked to clarify if the Labour leader was against proportional representation, he said yes, which is a slight step up from merely it not being a priority for electoral reform. Now, of course, there are other systems we could think about other than proportional representation when we're talking about reforming the electoral system in the UK to not just be one that tends to leave us with two dominant parties that tend to be different flavors of the same uh, thing. But here Starmer is clearly coming out against electoral reform. Bizarre, as it could only aid Labour, I think, ultimately. But maybe he's scared that a coalition or Labour minority government would not give him enough power to enact those fascinating policies about what can't remember, like most voters, then what Keir Starmer actually stands for is quite difficult to pin down. Next story. Andrew Bridgen has been expelled from the Tory party. The move comes after Bridgen, well known for his anti-Covid vaccine views, posted this on social media in January. As one consultant cardiologist said to me, this is the biggest crime against humanity since the Holocaust. He was talking, of course, about Covid-19 vaccinations. Now, after that tweet, the party suspended Bridgen, but that didn't stop him from fervently campaigning against the vaccine in Parliament, including posting the details of a 14-year-old girl's post-mortem on social media. This led to a rebuke from the leader of the House, Penny Mordaunt. What other colleagues are not doing is promoting false propaganda, which is widely known to originate from the Kremlin, abusing and undermining colleagues and the occupant of the chair, and using the autopsy of a 14-year-old girl as clickbait on their social media feed, all of which the Honourable Member has done in the past week, and he might like to reflect on that. Fighting a conspiracy theory with a conspiracy theory there, with anti-vax propaganda originating from the Kremlin, apparently. Now, despite no longer being a member of the Tory party, Bridgen is radicalised, riled up and unrepentant. Do you regret saying it now in the cold light of day, given that you've been expelled? It's, um, it's, it's deeply upsetting to be expelled from a party I've served uh, for... Uh, for several decades uh, and campaigned hard for, but I, I, I barely recognise the Conservative Party at the moment. We seem to have moved away from being a party that legislates for the people to a party that legislates against the people. Um, surely I've got the right to free speech to express the genuine and legitimate concerns of my constituents about the safety and efficacy of experimental vaccines, which were never tested properly. Uh, we know there's considerable vaccine harms. They're starting to emerge now. And, and Patrick, bef before I spoke out in December, and what urged me to do so was when the, the government were looking at approving the experimental vaccines for children down to the age of six months to babies. Uh, as a result of those speeches I gave in Parliament, um, the government position has moved in a few months from wanting to vaccinate babies of six months. They, that never happened. Um, 
then they moved the position to only over 50s and the immunocompromised uh, in January, for February the 12th. I gave another speech on the 17th of March pointing out how the boosters were, the, the lack of efficacy and the cost of them and the dangers of them. And then it's moved to over 75s, a completely different position that the government were adopting. And I put it to you, there was no one else speaking out. And if that's cost me my political career... Then, then so be it, quite honestly, Patrick, because if I've saved the life or, or one child from being injured, um, that's worth it, isn't it? Gosh, GB News is spending an awful lot of money on the makeup budget. Maybe if they cut some, they'd be making such a giant loss. <laughs> Sean, is Andrew Bridgen an interesting case of radicalisation that we're seeing more and more at the top of our political trees? There is evidence that perhaps he has been somewhat radicalised um, into a conspiracy theory on social media. And I think what we should um, perhaps draw a lesson from on that is that the, yeah, the, the, these online conspiracy theory movements um, reach all walks of life. Um, I've just been uh, dealing with, <laughs> I write a Vogue col advice column, as you know, I've been just answering a letter to someone whose parents you know, who were middle class professionals during the um, during the pandemic lockdowns have completely fallen prey to conspiracy theories to a point where it's destroyed their family life. This is quite a serious, um, yeah, quite a serious social phenomenon. And I think we should all take it as a cue, the fact that someone in, you know, visible political life um, can really fall down the rabbit hole as a sign of the danger of this stuff, that it isn't just um, a few cranks online that it can actually really take hold. And if we um, don't have robust systems for challenging misinformation in political life, then unfortunately, conspiracy theories will take hold. You just pointed out that Penny Morden um, came back <laughs> with something that itself um, seemed to belong to the realm of conspiracy theory or certainly wasn't robust evidence-based argument about the influence of the Kremlin. And I think we really have to, um, you know, take seriously the levels of disinformation and the fact that actually politicians often use and tap into um, these quite wild conspiracy theories. I'm a trans woman in the UK. Like I can tell you right now that there are some bizarre online conspiracy theories fueling the gender critical movement that our government is tapping right into. Uh, the same is true around migrants and the same is true around public health care and specifically vaccines. And so I think we need to start seeing that just as I said earlier, that we need to see gambling, if you like, as a public health issue. Um, I think we need to start seeing disinformation and um, I don't know, outright lies as somewhat more of a kind of political health issue. So I can never stop thinking when we talk about disinformation about some raft of studies I read uh, during the pandemic, actually, interestingly, which talked about how when, uh, you know, democracy is weaker, people and people get more disenfranchised, the more they turn to alternative explanations. And it's interesting that it seems like our own MPs engaging in that system are so maybe even unconsciously aware of the rot at the centre of it and the the pseudo nature of the democracy we live in and they participate in, that they also start buying into and say, oh, there's something else going on there. And obviously I'm also thinking about sort of the transphobia conspiracy theories that take root at the top of politics nowadays. You've got people pushing ideas that are completely not evidence-based at all um, in order to target minority groups. And some of them are really, really committed to those ideas. Some of them, I think, 
using it more opportunistically, say like Rishi Sunak, but some people within Parliament really seem committed to the absolute falsehoods that they're blasting out. Um, I wondered, Sean, what do you think? Are we in the era, we've talked to this, you know, when Brexit came around, it was this idea of we've had enough of experts. Have we moved firmly into the feelings over facts stage of politics? Well, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, need for a feelings over facts form of politics because if everything is at the very end of the episode, Moira. Everything's coming together, isn't it? But it, it's a thread through from the the climate crisis discussion that we were having earlier. Is we are facing a huge existential crisis in which it you know it is plainly true that we are unless something changes, we are bound to huge repercussions as a planet as a species um, and as a society and culture. And yet <laughs> the only way that, you know, that some very, very profitable interests in maintaining the status quo can be maintained is to completely create um, a dispute over the facts, is to advance um, and I think we will see with regards to climate more and more wild conspiracy theories, because as the evidence becomes more and more overwhelming, the counterpoint will become even more deranged. And so I think we are unfortunately headed into, I think we've barely even begun with the politics of disinformation. It's like, you know, obviously, I think the presidency of Donald Trump seemed to bring out a, a lot more focus and study and analysis of it. But there was a, a culture that led towards that in politics that led to the election of Donald Trump. And I think we are at the beginning of it, not the end, unfortunately, because we have many more decades to come of it being in some very rich and powerful interests to fill the public sphere with complete nonsense. And along the way, it doesn't just have to be climate. When you talk about um, transphobia, it just, you know, I think what we see on both sides of the Atlantic, as you say, I'm just back from New York, is um, this plays well um, with distraction. I mean, I think there is a deep seated, um, distrust of trans people in some elements of political life, but I think a lot of it is the fact that on both sides of the Atlantic, you see the working class who are increasingly experiencing a, a degraded standard of living. And yet the papers are completely full of the genital configurations of trans people. And unfortunately, I think we're just going to see this spread out towards more groups, more issues, more topics in the coming decades. Yeah. Grim, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> when you said that the arguments on the climate side is going to get more deranged, I had a vision of Steve Baker somewhere in a like a Tufton Street lair, suspended in medical fluid, waking up, <laughs> getting ready. Uh, I'm just going to read out one more comment on the super chat because it's a nice one. Robert, with a $2 donation, says, Moya is coming into her own. Good job, Navara. They gave me the Joe Biden steroids tonight. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, for watching. Thank you, Sean, for joining me. And as always, being so insightful, so quick on the ball. My producer, Fox, was like, she's so good. You are so good. Oh, thank you. And I, I'll have the steroids. I'll have what you're having. I'm, I think it's like 4 a.m. my body does. So I'm glad to have been a service, Moya. <laughs> you're on Joe Biden time. Come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6 p.m. with Michael and Aaron. And for now, you have been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.